All right. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. What's up? It is good to see you guys. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, this semester. And we're doing this series called Messy Church. And it's because when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a letter that was written to this group of people in a city called Corinth, hence the name 1 Corinthians. It's the first letter we have recorded to them in the Bible. And uh, we saw there was a mess. There's all sorts of problems and stuff. So this letter is a lot of Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote this, is uh, just answering a lot of questions that the Corinthian people had been asking him. And in the process of this, we've seen that their church can be a bit of a mess. Um, Now, what we're going to see this morning is... Uh, we're going to be getting into a difficult scripture. Have any of you guys ever like been reading your Bible and just come across something like, I don't know what this is talking about? And, okay. Well, I, I figured everyone was hand to go. But I, I know for me, that, that certainly happens uh, every now and then. And, uh, okay, how many of you guys have ever been reading your Bible and uh, you come across something and you realize, man, I, I don't know like any Christian that does that. Like, why do we not do that anymore? Does anyone have? Oh, wow. Okay, so... I guess that you all know why we don't uh, do dietary, sacri- uh, dietary restrictions or animal sacrifices, all these other things, right? Uh, we can, we, I don't have time to get into every one of those things. Uh, a lot of that is summed up in the difference between the Old and New Covenants, which I actually preached a sermon on that a couple years ago uh, that you can find on our website. It's called The Two Covenants, and it came from our uh, Upside Down Kingdom series. But still, every now and then, there'll be something uh, that you can come across in the New Testament, and you realize, huh, I don't really know anybody who practices that, or I know very few people who practice that thing. Um, For me, uh, I kind of grew up with this way, with evangelism being this way. Um, I didn't really know anybody uh, that actually shared their faith. I mean, I feel like it was until about middle school that I uh, really started interacting with somebody that legitimately went out and shared their faith. Um, Now, so some of the reason why Christians, why you see, hey, Christians aren't doing the things they're supposed to be doing, sometimes it's just flat out because of disobedience. Um, That was the case for me with evangelism. I was confused. You know, I kind of grew up in the church. I knew it was kind of this thing that was important, and I saw it in the scriptures a lot, this idea of like going and making disciples and sharing your faith, but I didn't really see it. So I was legitimately baffled for a while about like why I didn't see that so much. I was trying to figure out like, is there some sort of cultural reason for why people don't evangelize that much anymore, or whatever. And it just turned out to be, um, I was just in a situation where I think there was a lot of disobedience in that area. But disobedience isn't always the answer. Um, Sometimes, I I think the reason that you don't see Christians doing a certain thing that you come across in the scriptures is because the proper application of the passage might not be quite as simple as you think that it is. Okay, so there's some things that might look straightforward, but we have to remember that we're trying to be obedient to what the Bible is actually teaching. Um, Most of the time, it's straightforward, and you can just kind of do the same thing that it's talking about, and you're going to be in good shape. Uh, There's other times where whatever command is given is given in a very highly specific cultural context, and uh, it makes it difficult to know necessarily, okay, is this something that we still have to be applying in our culture today? Is there a chance that I would actually be doing the opposite of what the passage is trying to get me to do if I were to follow it directly? Uh, and it can get really confusing. It doesn't happen that often, but every now and then you'll come across something that's like that. And so we have to remember the, the Bible is God's word, but it was also he, he chose to transmit it to us through human beings that lived in specific cultures at specific times. And so the texts are affected by that. It doesn't corrupt them. It just means that there's a reality that we have to understand about that. So when we want to understand what God's word is to us, we first have to understand what it was to the original hearers. And when we understand what it means for the original hearers, we can get at what the message is actually saying. That will allow us then to go and apply it properly in the context that we live in today. All right? And so uh, we even saw this a little bit earlier uh, in 1 Corinthians with the meat sacrifice to idols. We saw, man, okay, meat sacrifice to idols, that was a cultural problem uh, that was going on there. None of us have probably ever encountered a problem with, should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Um, But yet, after we understand what's going on there, which uh, was really the, the fact that Paul was saying, hey, 
yeah, the idol isn't actually anything, but one, I don't want you guys participating in demonic worship services, and two, I don't want you to do anything that might violate the conscience of another believer. So like, you need to be willing to sacrifice your comfort or freedom for the good of others. So see, once we understood what it was saying in that culture, we were able to take it and apply it in our culture. So even though we may never actually be worried about eating meat sacrificed to idols, we can take that principle and realize, huh, okay, there's some Christians that may think certain things are sin that aren't explicitly sin, but I need to make sure that I don't do those things for their good if I'm ever in a context that I think might cause them to stumble. You guys tracking with me so far? I know I'm diving right in, but that's because I've got a lot that uh, I, I want to, to get into with this passage this morning. So today, we're going to be looking at really what I would consider to be probably one of the more confusing passages of the New Testament, if not the most confusing passage in the New Testament. Um, it's puzzled commentators for millennia at this point. Um, and before we, we get into it, though, one, I'll say you've probably never heard a sermon preached on it before, and there's a reason for that, uh, which is because it's very difficult to understand what the text is saying in the first place. And second, we have to do a little bit of work to understand uh, how to apply it in our culture today. Uh, so it's not generally going to be the most <clears throat> strategic, so to speak, passage uh, for, for churches to preach on. But the reason I want to preach on it this morning <clears throat> is because I really, really want us to be a biblically literate church, Okay. One of my great desires for you guys is that you would develop a love for the Word of God and that you don't just come here on Sunday mornings to hear me or Kyle or Rob or whoever preach, um, but that you also develop a love for the Word of God and that the Word of God starts to shape your life and that you learn how to read it and apply it in your own life. So my goal whenever I'm preaching to you really is, is not just to give you a fish, but also to teach you how to fish if you track with, with the analogy. I want you to learn how to be able to feed yourself and understand the scripture yourself because you're going to grow so much more as you have the opportunity to do that day in, day out. Um, all right, so with the passage that we're going to get into this morning, I want to say it, it will seem a little bit confusing. It will probably seem a little bit irrelevant. It might seem, um, I can virtually guarantee it will seem offensive on some level uh, for a little bit. Um, and, and because I have to work through so much, this might be a little bit more dry than a normal sermon. It might feel a little bit more like a seminary class at first, um, but I, I promise that I'm going to get to a to point of application where this is going to be relevant for us. But I want you to understand this because I want you to, to know how to interpret the Word of God, and I also want you to know how to handle questions that your friends ask as you're doing evangelism about, hey, why is it that Christians are so hypocritical? Why is it that they pick and choose the things that they want to apply out of Scripture? So I want to help you with those kind of things. All right. Are we good? Are you guys ready? Are you excited to, to learn about this? Okay, cool. All right. Well, with that, we, we need to pray. I know that I need the Lord's strength as I'm going through this. Um, so just in humility, I, I confess that, uh, that I certainly am not an expert on everything that we're going to be talking about, but I have studied this a lot this week. Um, so let's pray and just ask the Lord to guide us. Uh, Father, you are so good, and uh, we just we love you. We want your name to be exalted. Um, we want to be closer to you. Uh, God, we want to really just be good witnesses. We want to be good children. Father, we want to be people that live obedient to your will. We want to hear your word to us, and we want to apply it in our lives. And so, Lord, we just ask this morning that that's exactly what would happen, that you would speak your word to us clearly, God, that you would help us to understand what it is that you want to communicate to us through this passage. God, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you do speak to us and that you do guide us and that we can know you. We love you so much, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be starting off in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. So let you know where we are in this letter. We've just kind of wrapped up a big section uh, where Paul was, was applying a lot of these ideas about um, the meat sacrifice to idols thing I was talking about, running hard, giving up your, your rights for the, the good of others. He's kind of <clears throat> um, almost put a bow on that, although that's really going to be a theme that we see throughout 1 Corinthians. He's, he's about to move on to this new section of the letter now where he's going to address several different questions that they have about how to conduct themselves in the worship gathering. Okay, we're not going to have, be able to get to every single one of them. I'm just going to tackle what I think is the most confusing one, which is the one about head coverings. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read verses 2 through 16. 
I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every man who prays or prophesies, sorry, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so as I said, confusing, probably offensive on some level. Um, I, I, I know we read that, we probably have a lot of questions. I know when I read that, as I read this, there's a million questions that pop up in my mind. And I wish we had time to answer every single one of them. I'm not going to be able to. Maybe I could do a Saturday seminar, seminar on head coverings or something if you guys were interested. But um, with that, the, I, I want to preface this with saying there are some things in the Christian faith that we need to hold on to with a closed hand. Uh, things that are absolute essential doctrine. We're talking life and death primary issues. Um, examples would be things like the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like the main message that the apostles preached, or salvation uh, by grace through faith alone. Like those, those are primary issues. We have to hold on to those. Those are the essence of what makes us Christians who we are. There's, there's other issues that we need to hold with a little bit more of an open hand. And what I mean by that is, not that we need to neglect these or not care about these kinds of issues, but they're issues that aren't quite as clear. And and there's disagreement within people that would still call Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Like, there's disagreement with some of these kind of things, okay? And and there's a huge list of things that we could go through. The point of my sermon isn't to get into all of them this morning, so I'm not going to list a bunch. But just to give you a couple examples, uh, things like who should be baptized. You know, certain Christians think that infants should be baptized. Other Christians think that infants shouldn't be baptized. Um, how should a church be structured? You know, some people think that only men should be ordained as pastors. Others think that anyone could. Some think that the congregation should lead the church. Some think that elders should lead the church. There's tons and tons of different issues we could get into where we say, hey, these are a little bit more open-handed things where uh, we, we have to make a decision about it, okay? Like, we, we can't just ignore it as though it's something that we don't have to worry about at all, right? Like, when it comes to baptism, if someone in the church has a baby, you have to choose, as a church, are you willing to baptize that baby or not? Now, I'm not saying that this is a life and death salvation issue, but it's also not something that can just be neglected, Same with the way that when it comes to structuring your church. I I think that there's room for disagreement within Christianity about some of the way that the church can be structured, but at the end of the day, as a practical matter, your church has to be structured in some way. You have to choose how you're going to to, uh, assign authority, how you're going to ordain leaders, and that kind of thing, okay? And and so I call these issues open-handed because they're not salvation-related, but they are important, and, and they're things that we have to make a decision on, but we don't have to hold on to them with a death grip. Like, we have to exercise a little bit more humility and realize, hey, I'm going to make the best decision that I possibly can with the information that I can draw from the scripture. But I also have to realize, hey, maybe there's a chance that I'm wrong on this. Like, maybe down the road, I'm going to realize I'm wrong about this. There's room for discussion about this within Christianity. But for right now, I have to make a decision. And so the way I'm going to make that decision is by studying the scripture the absolute best that I can, praying about it as much as I can, thinking about this, and at the end of the day, I make the best decision I can with the information available to me from God's word, okay? What we shouldn't do is make our decision about open-handed issues just on saying, well, this is the one I want, and this is the way that I feel like it should be, so that's the one I'm going to go with, okay? 
So with that being said, I I think that what we're getting into this morning would be more in that open-handed category. Uh, There's a lot of disagreement within Christianity about what's going on in this passage. Um, Some of it just even on a, a language level, okay? The Bible wasn't written in English. So when you read what I, what I was reading, that's an English translation of a Greek text. And there's actually some difficulties even in translating uh, this text. If you start off in, in verse 3, which is kind of one of the big inflammatory statements, but I think it's an important foundational statement for what Paul's trying to get at in this text. He said in verse 3, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. All right, so what does this mean? This is a pretty inflammatory sentence, uh, especially in 21st century America. Um, We have to figure out how to translate it properly. As a matter of fact, if some of you are following along in your Bibles, uh, what I have up there on the screen is the New International Version translation. If you're reading in the English Standard Version, it's going to read like this. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so I'm not trying to sow seeds of doubt in you about your different translations. I want you to understand a little bit about what the Greek is, is what the problem is here. Uh, and basically what the issue is, the word for man in Greek is the exact same word as the word for husband. And the word for woman in Greek is the exact same word as the word for wife. They're literally identical. There's no way to distinguish between what word is what. And so the only thing that helps us is context to know whether or not we're talking about men and women in general, or whether we're talking about husband and wife in general. I see validity in translating it either way. I mean, when the ESV translators that translated it as husband and wife, um, I see what they're talking about. It it makes a little bit more sense at face value to get this idea of like, okay, the husband's the head of the wife. That makes a little more sense. We get this idea sometimes of uh, the husband being the head of the household. He's kind of a leader in the family. Um, So I get that, but it also seems strange to me um, that they would use the word in the sentence one way generically as man, you know, like Christ is the head of man. It doesn't, they didn't translate it, Christ is the head of husband, Christ is the head of man, but then all of a sudden, later in the sentence, they translate it as husband. I see why that's a difficult thing too, okay? Um, So once again, back to this approach of humility, it's hard for us to even know which way to translate this? Is this talking about men and women in general? Is this talking about husband and wives? Um, I, I lean a little bit more towards saying it's, it's probably more likely that the NIV has the translation correctly. Most, uh, most popular English translations are going to translate it the way that the NIV did uh, with talking about man and woman generically. But I, I do see validity in the ESV case. In any case, though, I think that, that the, really even the more important question we have to ask is, what is it talking about when it says this idea of head? Okay, so once, once again, the Greek word here for head is kephale, and this generally refers to like your anatomical head of your body, um, but just like in English, it can also be used in a metaphorical sense, right? So we understand uh, when this is used in a metaphorical sense in English, same idea here, um, but it could still mean two different things. So there's kind of two major camps that say, what is going on when it talks about the head here? Some would say it's talking about source, as in um, it would be saying that Christ is the source of man, man is the source of woman, and that God is the source of Christ. There's some strength to this in that John 1.3 says that all things came into being through Jesus, Okay, it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It says all things have been came, that came into being are through him. So certainly that idea that man is, is from Christ makes sense. He was present in the creation process. Um, also, Genesis 2, 21 through 22 talks about how the woman was created from man. It talks about how Adam, uh, God took from Adam's side and, and made the woman. And so that would make sense as a source there. I think the problem with this argument is that it would require us to say that God is the source of Christ. And uh, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is eternally existent in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even if we go back to John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word is Jesus. So it's saying Jesus has been eternally existent. So we have big problems if we try to say that Jesus is a created being. That would be a heresy uh, that if you lived back in the 4th century, you would probably get burned for. Um, So 
so, so we have an issue there. So if, it's, if this is saying that God is the source of Christ, the only way that you could fix that would just say, well, the Father is the source of Christ in the terms of the incarnation. So that Jesus has eternally been existent, but the incarnation is when Jesus took on flesh. It's the Christmas story. Uh, God becoming a man, being born of the Virgin Mary. Um, that, that's the idea that it might be commu- communicating here. Um, I think that's possible. I think it might be a little bit of a stretch to say that he's trying to refer to the incarnation, but it's possible. The other school of thought is that when it's talking about head, it means it in the sense of like a leader or a person that's in a sense of authority. Okay? Um, this would be the more natural way to understand the word head in a metaphorical sense. Uh, if you said that somebody was like the head chef or the head waiter at a restaurant, you know exactly what that means. You realize that that person is in some level of leadership or authority within that organization. Um, and of course, this makes great sense with seeing how Christ would be the head of man, right? Jesus is our king. He's our Lord and our Savior. Of course, he's the head of man. Uh, with regard to God being the head of Christ, this makes sense too. Because even though we would say that they're equal in value, we see that the Father has a leadership role within the Trinity. Uh, if you look at, I'm not going to read these here, but if you look at John uh, 5 and John 12, Jesus says in both of those places, he talks about how he only uh, does what he sees the Father doing. He only says what he hears the Father saying. So there's this idea that the Father was leading the Son. Um, now, the, the problem that you have with this view is that it's confusing to see Christ as the head of man, whereas, of course, he's also the head of, of woman, too, right? Um, now, notice, though, that the text doesn't say Christ is the head of man and that he's not the head of woman. It just says that Christ is the head of man, and then it goes on to say that man is the head of woman. Uh, so it's, it's not a mutually exclusive thing. I think that we can read this in a way and still understand that Christ is the head of woman, ultimately. Um, but there's also a lot of controversy in this view, especially in our culture today, to say that males have any sense of leadership position or authority of any kind over women simply by virtue of being male. Um, the, the reason I would probably lean a little bit more towards this interpretation, as I said, when we're looking at these issues, we have to make the best decision we can based upon the scriptural evidence that we have, not based upon the thing that we want it to be. Um, so I lean a little bit more this way because I think it's more in line with how I see this word head used somewhere else in the scripture, which is in Ephesians 5. Uh, if, in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about the relationship between husbands and wives, he says this. It's kind of a famous and also notorious passage to some degree. Ephesians 5, through 24 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. All right? So the language we have here is very similar with that idea of, of head. We see that pop up here again, and we see it in a sense of authority. Now, once again, the difficulty with using this is, Paul's talking about this specifically in the context of husband and wife. So maybe this brings us back to saying, maybe this passage is talking about husbands and wives. Um, Regardless of how we come to saying, is this talking about husbands and wives? Is this talking about males and females in general? I think that the more reasonable reading of this passage, in line with how we're, the more natural way of understanding head in a metaphorical sense, is that the, uh, the male is in some way, uh, in, in some sort of leadership or authority position. Um, now, that in no way at all implies that male is superior to female. And this is where I think that uh, people abuse and go wrong with this and hurt a lot of the time, okay? Now, the reason that we know that this is definitely 100% not where we should go with this is mainly because we see that it says, man, God is the head of Christ. So if, if Christ is, is great and is exalted as exalted as we say that he is, and if he is, was in the beginning with God, he was God, he, we see that he, he's equal with the Father, um, then, then if God is his head, that's in no way saying that the Father is superior. It's simply speaking to a difference in the roles that they have. Okay, So this idea of head is relating more to role than it is relating to value. The father takes a leadership role, but that does not mean that he's better. And I think that we've got to get over this in our culture of somehow thinking that a leadership role makes one person better than another person. Okay? 
God has designed men and women with the same value. They're both made in his image, and together they show that image. They, they make up mankind together. We are not in competition, but in collaboration. And I think that Paul really puts several safeguards within this passage even to help people understand, I don't want you to run with this in a direction where you think that men can be domineering over women. As a matter of fact, that's even why we see in verses 11 through 12, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So, so what's happening here? He's saying, I want you to understand, male and female are completely interdependent upon one another. They are different, but they are very, very tied together in an inseparable way that has equal value. And then notice what he also does is he ultimately brings our eyes back to who? To God. But everything comes from God. Okay, so let's stop squabbling about uh, minor leadership or authority or anything like that or how, whatever way God's designed uh, the, the role of, of uh, the husband to be in the household with his wife. Because even in that Ephesians 5 passage, yeah, it talks about wives submitting to husbands. But if you look just a few verses earlier, it says submit to one another in love. Okay, um, so there's this, this idea of, yeah, there, there's some sort of authority, but it, it's a very, very benevolent, mutually submissive uh, type of authority that's never domineering in any way, okay? Uh, the, the father and the son were always on the same page together. One was never lording authority over another. And I, I'd say to our shame as Christians, I think that oftentimes um, the church has, has really, really misunderstood this. People have used passages like this to try to put women in uh, positions that are, that are lower than what they should be. And uh, they, they have definitely, I think, broken the spirit of a lot of women with a misunderstanding of how God has actually made us different and distinct as male and female, but together and, and equal in value, okay? This is a complex point. I feel like I've spent a lot of time on it. I'm going to come back to it again later. Uh, but the, the big point that I want you to get from this, that Paul is even, even saying in this passage, is that what you do with your physical head can either honor or dishonor your metaphorical head, okay? Because he goes on, he, he kind of makes this foundational statement about the, the, these different metaphorical heads. And then he goes on to play off of that word and show how what you do with your physical head is going to affect the way that you honor or dishonor your metaphorical head. So essentially, he wanted them to see that how they behaved in this area was important because it affected others. He said that men should make sure to have their head uncovered when they pray and prophesy, but women should have their head covered when they do this. And failure to do this would bring dishonor on either Christ or on men. And so there's a few really important questions I think that we have to ask this point in the text. What does it mean to have your head covered? What was happening in Corinth that made Paul write about this? And then why does covering or uncovering the head bring dishonor depending upon what sex you are. Okay, so let's work through these the best we can here. What does it mean to have your head covered? We actually have another difficulty here in the text. Um, <clears throat> the Greek phrase that speaks of having a head covered, literally, if you were to translate it word for word, says having down the head is, is what that means. So uh, we're actually not quite sure exactly what it is that it's even speaking of. Uh, there's several different theories. <clears throat> The three big ones, uh, one is saying that this is talking about hair length uh, for people, that, that men are supposed to have short hair and that women are uh, supposed to have long hair that acts as a natural covering for them. Um, some think that this is more talking about hairstyles, uh, that, it's, that men are supposed to have short hair. Women, when it talks about having, that, that having down the head, they're saying that's actually referring to the fact that they're not supposed to have their hair loose and flowing in worship, but rather that they should like put it up in a bun or something like that. Um, and then the, the third view, which I think is the, the view that's most likely, is that this is talking about a, um, an actual piece of clothing, like a... a, a external head covering, almost like what you think of with a Muslim hijab or something like that. Uh, head coverings were used by, by Christian women for a very, very, very long time uh, in a similar fashion. So the, um, I, I think that the, that's the strongest evidence. I don't have time to get into why I think that's the strongest evidence. If you want to talk to me about it, talk to me after the service. Um, 
But anyway, I think that's what he's getting at is, is that women are supposed to be wearing in Corinth some sort of external head covering and that men are not supposed to. So what was going on there? What was it that would make Paul write about this? Um, it seems that the reason the women in Corinth, uh, for, for whatever reason, they were discarding these head coverings what would be what's most likely. So why would they not want to be wearing their head coverings anymore? We have to guess about that a little bit. Um, the theory that I've found to be most likely is that uh, women were basically realizing this, this new value that they had in Christ, right? The gospel is actually, in many ways, a very egalitarian message. Uh, it's a message that, that shows that, that both male and female are saved in Christ. We become brother and sister in Christ. Uh, we see even here, it talks about women praying and prophesying, right? So th- th- what does this mean? If women are supposed to have their head covered when pr- they pray and prophesy, let's not forget the fact that that means women are allowed to pray and prophesy in the worship service, Uh, which was actually a revolutionary thing. That would have been a very, very new thing for Jewish women. And so uh, what's possible is that they took this understanding that they're one in Christ, and and they ran a little bit too far with it to to the standpoint of thinking, well, because we're one in Christ and we have equal value in Christ, that just means we should eliminate all distinctions between the genders altogether. There's no such thing as male or female anymore. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, when we, uh, when we go to heaven, we're going to be like angels, neither married nor, nor given in marriage. So we should just do away with all sorts of gender distinctions right now. And so they would discard this head covering as a symbol of saying, we don't need to have any sort of differentiation between male and female anymore. I don't have proof that that's what's going on, but it sounds like a reasonable um, explanation for me. And that would also make sense for why Paul was so adamant about the fact that they needed to keep the head covering. Because he's saying, no, th- this is a symbol of distinction between male and female, which is something that's still important. Which I'll get to that in a second. Um, but there's also other theories out there. Um, Paul mentions that men with heads covered would bring shame to their heads. Uh, some people think that that's just like a hypothetical situation he's talking about. Some people think he's referring to pagan worship rituals that would go on around them where women would have heads uncovered in that time and men's, men would wear cloaks over their heads for that. Um, we're not entirely sure, um, but there was some sort of problem that was going on, and the Corinthians were supposed to understand that it was bringing shame. Now, finally, why does covering or uncovering the head bring dishonor? Um, remember that this is talking about what you do with your physical head affects your spiritual head. So that would mean that a man who has his head covered uh, in worship is bringing dishonor to Christ. A woman with her head uncovered would bring dishonor to man. So some of this depends on what's the message that's being sent by the man having his head covered. What's the message that's being sent by the woman having her head uncovered? If this is, in fact, an attempt to disregard all gender distinction, then we see how that brings shame on both God, who created us male and female, and we see how it, it brings shame on the man as well. And that, like, man, they're not, she's not, the woman no longer wants to understand that, that she is um, his, his counterpart. Okay, and, and so in a way, I could see this, this idea of like, yeah, that's bringing shame. Um, if men are doing something that tied them to pagan rituals, men and women both, then of course the way that that dishonors Christ is pretty obvious. Um, and then, uh, yeah, really, we, it, verses 5 and 6 talk about how if women have their head uncovered, they dishonor their head to the point where they might as well just shave it. In this culture, a shaved head uh, was a sign of dishonor for women. Sometimes that was associated uh, with being caught in adultery or uh, maybe even being a, a partner in a lesbian relationship. And so there's a chance that uh, the, the discarding of this would even just be on a cultural level of saying, hey, when the woman does this, she's dishonoring her husband uh, because she's no longer showing that she wants to be like chaste and devoted to him. It would be a symbol of, yeah, I'm, I'm staying pure for my husband, but no, I'm going to get rid of it. So as I said, a lot of confusion here, but those are some of the options that what's going on. What I do think that we can conclude from this section is that head coverings played a culturally significant role in distinguishing between male and female at this time in Christian worship services, and to use them improperly would be shameful. Okay? So at this point, I think that I've dove into a little bit of the basic idea that was going on in Corinth. It was culturally mandated that women would wear head coverings in worship men would not. For some reason, there was a problem going on in the Corinthian church where men 
may have been covering their heads, women may have been uncovering their heads. We're not sure exactly why it happened, but most likely the theory that I think is that they were trying to discard all sorts of differences and distinctions between the genders. And in doing this, that would be shameful. Now, um, I want to move to some points of application here, and I know I haven't been able to get into every verse, but I'll I'll still hit on a few of the others as, as I go through a few takeaways, I think, that we can have for our culture today. And the first and biggest one is that we need to celebrate both male and female. Um, It's true that we're one in Christ. God made us male and female. Together we reflect his image. I want to read this from Genesis 1, 27 to 28. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So before the fall, God makes us male and female. And it's after this even that God says things are very good on the sixth day. And notice what he told us to do, though. He told us, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Well, guess what needs to happen in order for that to take place? You need both male and female. And so Genesis 2 zooms in a little bit even on this idea of, of how uh, female was, was, was made from male. We see in, verse, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. <clears throat> now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, so even there, that's kind of a beautiful thing, right? We see that woman was taken out of the flesh of man, and then they also come back together and become one flesh. Um, It's kind of a cool thing that we see in that. But only in male and female coming together could God's command even be fulfilled, right? He creates him. He says, fill the earth, subdue it, multiply. Well, that can't be done without both parts. There's, there's equal significance in this calling that God has given us to spread his glory throughout the earth. We need each other. And, and really, we twist the intention, I think, of, of what Paul and what the whole Bible is teaching about, about the relationship between male and female. When in verses 7 through 9, in the main passage we read in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. I wanted to take you back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to help you even understand what Paul's reasoning is here that he's getting at. And and I don't think that he's in any way trying to create an inferiority complex amongst women. I think that he's trying to take us back to our history. One, to to help us understand um, just the the beauty of the fact that God has made us both male and and female. Um, But but also, like, it helps us explain this idea of of helper. That word helper is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, many times within Scripture, God is called our helper. Um, You can look at this. I think there's a few I put on the slide. I'm not going to read them. But you can look at this in Psalm 54.4. You see it in Hebrews 13 five through six, you can find in other places uh, that there's this idea of God coming alongside and helping. That, that's, once again, not a subservient thing. God is way higher than us, but he's still our helper. And so the female was created in this way that she becomes man's helper, but that doesn't mean that she's less than. Um, I, I think that the reason even why Paul starts to get into this idea of the woman is the glory of man, we read in Genesis 1 that both male and female were created in the image of God. Paul's not asserting that female wasn't created in the image of God. But what he wants to do is zoom in on the male-female relationship because that's what seems to be having a problem in Corinth, right? 
we have to remember this is a letter that was written for a specific occasion to address a specific problem. So if there was a problem that was going on between males and females and not being able to appreciate their distinction and the way that they need to work together, then of course that's the relationship Paul's going to zoom in on. So I don't think he's trying to say, woman, you weren't created in the image of God. Woman, your head's not Christ. I think that he's trying to help them see, don't forget. Don't forget that, that God fashioned you from the man to be his helper. Don't forget this beauty that there is in both the diversity and unity that you have. So I, I think that ultimately that's what Paul is trying to do, is help call male and female back to understanding the beautiful differences that God has made in us and how we're supposed to work together. And we should celebrate both sexes. Um, the second thing I think that we can, can draw from this, and this is important for us, is we need to communicate the right message in the context of our culture. Okay, so since the celebration and maintenance of gender distinction seems to be the main point of this passage, then I, I think that it's safe to conclude, at least for our culture, that head coverings are not really a mandate for women. And that's why you see very few women uh, wearing them in American churches. And it's also why I'm not worried about guys that come in wearing hats to church, right? Be because for us, these things have no sort of uh, meaning when it comes to gender distinction. But in Corinth, they did. And so if we're getting at what is it that Paul was actually trying to teach here, he was trying to get men and women to understand and appreciate gender distinctions and to celebrate those. Uh, for a woman to come into our church wearing a head covering is not helping us celebrate gender distinction in any way. Because that head covering has no meaning in our culture. But in their culture, it was important for them to, to abide by this. this is, hopefully this is finally starting to make sense. So this is all coming together here. Um, there's a theologian named Gordon Fee who wrote a great commentary on 1 Corinthians. And uh, I kind of have a lengthy quote that I want to read from him, but I think it's worth reading. He says, Although various Christian groups have fostered the practice of some sort of head covering for women in the assembled church, the difficulties with the practice are obvious. For Paul, the issue was directly tied to a cultural shame that scarcely prevails in most cultures today. Furthermore, we simply do not know what the practice was that they were abusing. Thus, literal obedience to the text is, mere, is often merely symbolic. Unfortunately, the symbol that tends to be reinforced is the subordination of women, which is hardly Paul's point. Furthermore, it would seem that in cultures where women's heads are seldom covered, the enforcement of such in the church, turns Paul's point on its head, okay? And so what he means by that is that um, he was trying to get women to keep with the common cultural practice that was considered appropriate for women. Whereas if we started to have women putting a covering on their head in our culture, that would actually make women do something that's not the common cultural practice considered appropriate for women. So in any case, the fact that Paul's own argument is so tied to cultural norms suggests that literal obedience is not mandatory for obedience to God's word, Okay? So this is what we're getting at here. Um, head coverings were only important because they were important for distinguishing between male and female in Corinthian culture when it came to worship context. So that's why we don't have women wear head coverings at H2O and we don't mind if guys come in wearing hats. Um, I think that this head coverings issue would be more along the line that we do have to ask our question, the question, am I sending any wrong messages by violating cultural norms? Am I doing anything that would uh, start to blur gender distinctions, would start to stop celebrating that difference? Okay, so that would be more things like men wearing women's clothes. You know, you know if a guy started to come in in a dress or something like that, then that, that would be more along the lines, I think, that, of what the problem would be here. Because we, we want to still maintain what our culture has understood to represent these gender distinctions. Um, and so even there, if you look at verses 13 through 15, I didn't really have much time to touch on those this morning. Um, but he goes back to, to really making a cultural argument. And this is even why I have a lot of confidence in saying I think this is a cultural argument. Is he really says, judge for yourselves. You see, is it right for, for women to have long hair? Is it right for men to have short hair? Obviously, in their culture, uh, it was widely accepted. He says, it does not the very nature of things show you that the women have long hair as a covering? Well, the nature of things has to mean the common cultural practice, Right? men can grow their hair just as naturally as women do. And as a matter of fact, there's times throughout the scripture where men were commanded to grow their hair. Samson had, wasn't supposed to cut his hair at all. Um, but, but clearly in the context of the Corinthian culture, they understand this as Paul is writing to them. that Oh yeah, if a man were to have long hair, that would be a disgrace. That would be a shame to him. 
And oh yeah, if women had short hair, that would be a disgrace. That would be a shame to them. And so he's helping them see, you guys get this, right? You understand that you don't want to shame yourselves in this way. So in the same way, like you need to abide by what your culture has said about these head coverings too. Now, verse 16, uh, Paul kind of ends with this statement that can seem a little bit harsh where he talks about, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we don't have any other practice and neither do the churches of God. Um, and I really think that what, what Paul is just getting there is, man, this happened to be the same, even though Paul had reached a lot of different cultures around the Mediterranean, the fact is they still would have all shared this similarity there. Um, for us, we don't share that culture. Now, I do think we have to think about, man, when we move to a culture that has this, say you go to the Middle East and head coverings are expected for women, then I think that it's important that we would abide by that expectation and that our women would wear head coverings in that, in that culture if they see that as being something that's important in understanding the distinction between male and female. Second last thing I want to talk about, just the, the, being will, the second last point of application being willing to sacrifice your comfort for the sake of others. This keeps coming up over and over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians. The strangest verse in, in chapter 11, in one of the strangest verses in the Bible, says, um, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Okay? Now, this verse has baffled people, as I said, for literally almost 2,000 years at this point. Um, there's tons and tons of different reasons that people have given for what Paul might be talking about here. I don't have time to get into all of them. But one thing I can say is this. When it says that woman ought to have authority over her head, this would actually be confusing to you as you read this in context, right? Because what we've seen over and over is that uh, when you read the passage, it says men should do this, and then it says women the opposite thing. Men this, women the opposite thing. If you go back to verse 7, it says that men ought not to have their head covered. So when you come to women, what are you expecting? Women ought to have their head covered. But that's not what it says, is it? It says... For this reason, a woman ought to have authority over her own head. That's a curveball if you're, if you're reading this text. And so what do I think Paul is getting at there? Uh, some people will say that it's actually supposed to say symbol of authority, uh, meaning the head covering is a symbol of authority that, that the man has over, but I don't think that's what it means because he didn't write symbol of authority. And every time you see this word authority used in the Greek, it, it refers to uh, that person having authority over something else. And so what I think that Paul is getting at here is that honestly, the woman has the right to do with her head what she wants to do, but she should exercise that authority in, in a way that is loving and responsible, right? It's the exact same thing as the meat sacrificed to idols that we saw. Yeah, you have the right to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. It's not actually wrong. It's not actually a sin for a woman to have her head uncovered. But you need to exercise that freedom in a way that is, is loving and benevolent towards those around you. And so Paul, for, for him, this, this issue is so clear-cut that culturally they should be doing this. It's like, yeah, she should have exercise authority over her own head, but it's clear that he comes to this conclusion that she should be wearing the head covering because that's what was necessary there. As far as that uh, line where it says, because of the angels, that's why I said this is one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. We can only guess at, at, what, at what that means. Um, the, the best guess uh, that I've come across is um, people are just saying like, hey, angels are at, at least observers of our worship. And so if they see us um, celebrating the difference that we have and ordering ourselves in proper worship, then it sets a, a good example for them, you know, or something along those lines. But as I said, if you want to talk to me more about that later, I'll talk to you about that too. Um, but uh, even if I'm wrong in interpreting verse 10 this way, I still think that we have the takeaway from 1 Corinthians as a whole that we need to be willing to sacrifice our comfort and our freedom for the sake of others when necessary. All right, and finally, the last thing I want to say is that we need to be people that are both humble and thankful, okay? As I go back to that open hand thing, like, we have to make a decision on these issues, but we have to be humble about the way that we do it, okay? So make the best possible decision you can. Don't just fluff it off. Don't just neglect it. Do the best you can, but do so in humility and realizing that, man, there might be some brothers or sisters that have a different thought than you. There are still Christians around the world today that, require women to wear head coverings in worship. Some of them here even in the United States. It's rare, but, but it exists. Um, and so I think that we need to be humble in the way that, that we are, assert ourselves in this. And so if you were to go to a congregation like that, if you're a guy, take your hat off. 
If you're a girl, put, put the head covering on. You know, just be, be willing to abide by, by what they think is appropriate there. Um, and also, man, I just think that we need to be thankful for the, the gospel. And then we need to be thankful for grace because there are things like this that are confusing. And man, like, I was, I was worried about preaching this morning because I'm like, man, I, I feel like I kind of understand the text, but there's a lot of questions I still have about it. I don't want to lead people astray. And so what I've tried to do is lead you as humbly and as carefully as I can in this matter. But at the end of the day, like, I'm very thankful that I'm not saved by perfect obedience to every single thing that God said. Do I want to be perfectly obedient to everything he says? Absolutely. But do I fall short? Yeah. And that, that's the beauty of the fact of that closed-handed issue of the gospel, that I'm not saved by my perfect obedience. I'm saved because Jesus Christ took my sin upon himself. As we were talking about that incarnation before, God became a man. He walked to this earth. He lived a perfect life. And he died the death that I deserve. He died on the cross taking the penalty that I deserve for every time I've broken God's commands. And, and as I put my faith in him, I can have that perfect righteousness of his transferred to me. And, and my sin is punished for him. And so with that, uh, I, I'm forgiven of sin and I'm, be able, I'm able to be brought back into relationship with God. And so now I walk with him. And I, and I hope and pray that he leads me in these matters. But at the end of the day, I realize that I'm saved not because I'm perfectly obedient, although I want to be, but I'm saved because Jesus was perfectly obedient. And he's the one that covers me. So with that, we're going to move into a time of worship now. The band can come down here. And uh, we're going to do something special in worship, uh, which is uh, take communion. And uh, what we're going to be doing in that is there's bread and there's juice up at, at the back of the room. And this is actually the next thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. We're not going to have time to preach on it. Uh, but the very next thing he talks about is proper conduct in the Lord's Supper and taking this. And... Uh, it's very important that we check our hearts when we do this. Um, because what we're doing when you go back, and, and we're going to release you once we start worshiping, to go back and go at your leisure. You can take the bread, you can dip it in the juice. And when you do that, uh, you're, you're proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're saying, this broken bread, this represents the body of Christ that was broken for me. This, this juice, it, it represents the blood of Christ that was shed for me. And so when you take that and you eat of that, it's not, it's not a magical thing, but it's a remembrance of the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was the one that initiated this new covenant. And so we ask that, man, if you're not a Christian, then we just ask that you abstain from this um, because it, it would really, it wouldn't make any sense. Doing this is actually a physical act of proclaiming, yes, I believe the gospel. Um, if you are a Christian, you believe the gospel, you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, then man, we invite you to come and partake in this. And uh, if, you're, if you're in a spot where it's like, man, I, I think I might believe the gospel. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I, I love, I'd like someone to help me understand a little bit more about what it means to even have my sins forgiven. Um, there's going to be people in the back that you can pray with. Um, I'm going to be back there too. And you can, I'd, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you more and answer any question you have, whether it's about head coverings or whether it's about how to, how to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Um, so we're just going to enter into this time of worship, and as I said, you can go back at your own leisure, and, and uh, let's, just, let's just worship our good and awesome God. Let's thank him uh, for the beautiful way that he's designed us. Let's thank him for the way uh, that he's made us both separate male and female, but that he's, he's made us equal in value, that he's saved us equally, that we get to serve him together in his kingdom, and that, that he's brought us into a relationship that starts now and continues into eternity. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and... Um, we just, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for uh, saving us. And God, we proclaim uh, that you are good. We proclaim that you are over all, that you're the creator of all. God, we, we declare you as our head. We declare you as our leader. You, we give you authority over every area of our lives. We thank you that you lead us, God. And we pray that you would help us to live as a people that are obedient to you. Uh, God, help us to live as a people that love you fervently. So God, we offer up this praise to you. We, we, we hope that it will please you. Uh, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us and be with us this week. Um, we lift this up your son's awesome name. Amen.